Well, we talked about last week that heart problems can be serious, and uh, spiritual heart problems can be serious as well. Last week, we talked about how anger can consume us, and anger can hurt us. We saw that anger never stays isolated, that it always spreads to your other relationships. How long are you going to let people hurt you, and how long are you going to let them control your lives when they have hurt you? But you can slay the, iron, uh, the, the giant of anger. We talked about that last week. We talked about how first you got to identify who you're really angry with, determine what you feel they owe you, cancel the debt, and dismiss the case. And that's how we learned how we would avoid bitterness and being consumed by uh, records that we have on people. Today we're going to talk about a different heart problem, and that's the heart problem of anxiety. Now, anxiety is not a new problem, but you hear it talked about a lot today. And it's a growing problem, especially in Generation Z, which Generation Z is the age group of 18 to 25. Now, I know most of you just got used to blaming millennials on everything, but now you can just shift that down to the 18 to 25-year-olds. We have to blame Gen Z on everything now. But anxiety and fear are two different problems. Anxiety is a constant sense of apprehension, often a response to an imprecise or unknown threat. For example, if you're walking down a dark street, you might feel a little bit apprehensive and uneasy, because, and maybe even have some butterflies in your stomach. And these sensations are caused by anxiety that's related to a possibility that maybe a stranger might jump out from behind a bush or approach you in some other way and somehow uh, harm you. And the anxiety is a result of, uh, of an unknown threat, not a specific threat. Rather, it comes from your mind, this interpretation of the possible dangers that could immediately arise. And eventually, anxiety can cause physical problems like headaches and tension and problems sleeping, nausea, dizziness, blood pressure spikes, and long-term health problems as well. Now, depression, you'll often hear anxiety and depression. Depression goes right along with that. And it, it, depression is this sense of doom uh, that you experience that eventually causes a sense of hopelessness and depression like things will never get better. If you have anxiety enough, eventually you're just going to feel like nothing ever will get better, and that's where we find depression. Now, fear is a, a little bit different. We'll talk about fear in a few more weeks, but fear is an emotional response to a known or a definite threat. If you're walking down a dark street, for example, and someone actually points a gun at you and says, this is a stick-up. I know some of you ladies in here probably carry a gun, and that wouldn't make you afraid. Raise your hand if you got... No, don't do that. Uh, but that's a definite threat. There's something to be afraid of, and you likely would experience a fear response. The danger is real, definite, and immediate. There's a, a clear and present object to the fear. So the Barna Group surveyed 15,000 people between the ages of 18 and 35. And 70% of those people between 18 and 35 say they don't feel deeply cared for by anyone. And also that they don't feel like anyone believes in them. This group is overwhelmed by negative thoughts, and they're anxious about important decisions, uncertain about the future. They're afraid to fail, a need to be perfect, 
a pressure to succeed. And, and they have labeled this generation and this time the age of anxiety. And it's closely related, many people believe, to the fact that we're also in the age of distraction. Our minds are constantly stimulated with social media and constant news cycles and text messages and multitasking, and a general feeling of not being known. We think that we are being social through some of the things that we do, but in actuality, we're not actually known by anyone, and this causes a feeling of anxiousness inside of us. If anybody finds out who I really am, or actually that I did make mistakes, or, or uh, you know, that I am that way, they might not accept me. And all that distraction and noise masks the fact that we're struggling underneath. Now, there's a, a popular band right now called 21 Pilots, and they talk about uh, this guy that has his car radio stolen. And the silence that he experiences now as he drives down the road forces him to think about his problems. And eventually, he uh, cries out, oh my, too deep, please stop thinking. I liked it better when my car had sound. And some of us, that's how it is. If we ever got to the point where we actually listened to what was going on inside of us, we wouldn't like it, and we want to avoid it, and we want to change our mind. Now, social media and entertainment are not the only noise that we turn up to drown out what's going on underneath. Some of us are planners, and we check and recheck our calendar. We balance our checkbook, and we try and plan for the future because we're scared of what possibly could happen. And we have these endless lists of, well, if this happens, then this happens, and then that happens, and that happens. <clears throat> exercise, this isn't something I do, but exercise can be the way that you turn up the noise too. It's good for your physical health, but sometimes if you do that to avoid listening what's going on inside you, then it's not good for your mental health. Eating, shopping, addictions. There's so many options right now when it comes to distraction. And distraction and disconnection has caused this culture of anxiety humming just below the surface. And we're only half aware of it. But then it gets too loud to ignore, and, and sometimes it even busts out into a full-on breakdown. We use distraction to avoid dealing with our real issues. Now, some of us absolutely have legitimate chemical imbalances that cause a medical reason for us to have the problem of anxiety. But even then, we can exacerbate these problems if we allow distraction to overwhelm us and avoid listening to what's going on in our heart. We probably each got to a place where one day something happened that was fairly trivial but it's, it snapped in us, and we realize, hey, there's a lot going on underneath all of what I'm dealing with. So the people have this problem. That can't be ignored. How does the church approach these problems? Well, a common verse that might come to your mind uh, is 1 Peter 5, 7. It says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, that's a wonderful verse. But I think sometimes we as Christians may throw that advice out without realizing that there's a process behind that. It's, it sounds so easy. Well, you have anxiety, just cast it. Cast it at Jesus. Just let go of it. And there, now there may be times that that works beautifully, and that's an amazing miracle and a blessing. But what happens when that yo-yo uh, anxiety comes right back? What happens when it comes back like a boomerang? What do you do then? Am I not trying hard enough? 
Am I not casting it right? Do I need to throw it a little bit differently? What happens when that doesn't work? Well, let's talk about a little bit of the context of this verse in 1 Peter. Who's this book, this letter written to? Well, it's written to Christians that are under persecution. They've been pushed out of their homes and they've left their cities as family members and friends are being uh, murdered for their faith. Judah Smith says, 1 Peter is an urgent letter written to anxiety-ridden Jesus followers wondering what the future holds. Who's around the next corner? Today, is it going to be them that's arrested? But this letter wasn't just written to one person. It's written to the church. And 1 Peter 1-2 tells us the book was written to the scattered and the exiles. This wasn't a church that, like we have right here. This is a bunch of people that have been pushed out. And now they're meeting in these small pockets of believers. And they realized that they needed each other. Peter knew that they needed encouragement and they needed help. In verse 22, Peter goes on. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincerely, uh, a brotherly love. Look here, it says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Peter's telling the church, hey, church, you're worried about what's going to happen. You're scattered. You're exiled. Uh, you're, you, you know that you need to love each other, but you have to love each other on purpose. Love each other earnestly, even when it's hard, even when it doesn't come naturally. The King James uses the word fervently. This means continuously and eagerly. This is not a handshake on Sunday morning. Hey, how you doing? This is an intimate relationship of knowing each other. These people knew and understand more than we know today that we need each other. We need the church. 70% of 18 to 35-year-olds feel like they are not deeply cared for by anyone. They are not known. They're disconnected. And I'm sure the numbers for the other age groups aren't much better. According to the Indiana Journal of Psychiatry, chronic loneliness can be as deadly for you as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Lonely people are 50% more likely to die prematurely. See, the church family is God's answer to loneliness. We have to love one another earnestly. We have to realize that in this room, there are people that are struggling. And yes, you're struggling too, but God has put you in their life for us to reach out. And you might say, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not great at that. Get over it. It's too important. Just six verses later, Peter goes on. 1 Peter 2, 4 says, as you come to him, talking about Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, he says, you yourself, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus. He says, as we come to this rock, the living stone, Jesus, we are supposed to turn into these living stones. We ourselves are like stones, building a spiritual house to please our God. And brick by brick, we come closer to each other like a body to build something greater than the individual. See, we're not a brick laying solitary in a field somewhere, 
No, we are to grow close together with each other, fitting together, building something that pleases our God, something that wouldn't happen naturally, loving each other more than our preferences and more than our opinions and more than our agenda. Why are we talking about this? We're talking about anxiety here, right? We're, we're giving context to what's going on in this letter in 1 Peter. He tells them to cast all their anxieties on him because he cares for you. Well, it's clear that these people are on the run. They're small pockets of underground churches. They needed each other. They had no other option. But today we're swollen with blessings, and we don't have to worry about what's going to happen uh, if the government were to come in here and shut us down, but they didn't have that luxury. So they understood that it was a clear call that they needed each other. They needed to love each other earnestly. Well, what if they didn't get along with each other? What if they had problems between each other? That didn't matter. They had to push through that because they were supposed to be building something bigger than themselves. See, that's the problem with the model in our church today is we emphasize the individual. We expect one another to do it alone. And we come into a room and, and we stay quiet and we listen and then we leave and we rarely change and we say, well, that was a great sermon for everybody else. No one's pointing out to you where we can grow. No one's lovingly saying, hey, you, this, you did this and you needed to do this instead. And no one's there in our sadness, and no one's there in our struggle. See, this right here is not how we develop deep, loving relationships with each other. Now, obviously, I believe this is biblical. Preaching and worshiping together is definitely biblical. But that doesn't mean we can ignore the blatant commands and encouragement from God's word that we need to be in deep relationship with each other. Where no man is an island, we can't be a fortress. We must be a community and a diverse community, not just three other people your age that agree with everything you say. That's not miraculous. God doesn't have to do anything for that to happen. It must be a community that breaks out. See, the Bible, when it says these things like, cast your cares upon me for I care uh, uh, because I care for you, or don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, in prayer and supplication, make your request be made known unto God, or come to me, all you that are heavy uh, laden, and I will give you rest. All these verses are true, but they also assume that you have not isolated yourself from the church or any real, deep, intimate relationship with the church. You have to realize that the way that we do church might not really be it. It's not really maybe biblical. If you just show up on Sunday morning and then wonder why you're not growing or why things aren't the way you wish they were, this is the reason. Because what we call church is not church. What we call church is this building, this beautiful building that God has given us. But this isn't church. We are the church. And they didn't have the luxury back then, to have all that we have. And they understood what was more important than buildings and what was more important than uh, property was the person sitting next to me. And if I'm going to love the church, it means I'm going to love the person next to me more than I love any material thing. 
The majority of the New Testament is written to the church. Christianity doesn't work without the church. And I'm not talking about going to church. I'm talking about being the church. Because church isn't a building. It's a people. There was no church buildings until 200 years after Christ. We are the church. And that's why it says over and over again these different commands, like in Romans 12, 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Have you ever had a, a situation like that? I love it when that happens, where two people walk up to a door, right? And they're like, let me get that for you. No, 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 no. Let me get that. Hey, let me do it. And they go back and forth, and it's this dance about who gets to show honor to each other. And that's what the Bible's telling us. Hey, you take the seat. Hey, I, I understand. Look, not my opinion this time. Let your opinion. How can I honor you? How can I show love to you? How can I defer to you? We've got to speak the truth in love to each other. We have to love each other. And a lot of this anxiety stems from the worry that I'm not accepted. And if people really knew what was going on inside, they wouldn't love me. Or honestly, I don't even think they'd really like me. Nobody deeply cares about me. I am alone, and I don't know if I can make it through this if this happens. I have no one to lean on. And then he tells us, cast all your anxieties on me because I care for you. We talked about this first part of this verse, casting our cares. How do we do that? What if anxiety comes back? But before we go on, let's dwell a minute on the second half of this verse. Do you really believe that he cares about you right now? Do you really believe that he wants to be with you in that pain? Do you believe he knows where you are right now? That he knows that you're struggling, that he loves and cares about you anyway? Do you really believe that? See, there's a problem with the way that we read the Bible sometimes. Uh, these things called references and chapter divisions really mess us up a lot of times. Because they did this weird thing. And, they, you know, it's okay for me to say this. Uh, the apostles didn't write these, you know, verses. They didn't come till eight or 700 years after the Bible was penned. They just put those things in there so it was easy for us to find. But the problem is, is they sometimes separate a sentence. And that's what we find in 1 Peter 5, 6, this is actually the beginning of the sentence that we've been reading, casting all your cares. And it says this, it says, humble yourselves, plural, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you, comma, casting all your cares upon him because he cares for you. See, this verse here says, put down your pride, put down your ego, Bring your stuff to God, and he will be the one that lifts you back up. God loves you. He cares about you. He's not far away. He's not disappointed. If you've accepted Christ as your Savior, then he sees the righteousness of Jesus when he sees you. You don't have to hide. You don't have to run. No, you stand before God completely known. But notice those first two verse, uh, words in that uh, sentence. In verse 6, it says, humble yourselves. Again, these words are not talking to us individually. They are talking to a group together. Humble ourselves together. Cast our cares together. God cares about us, and that's why he gave us the church. Peter has written this letter to a church 
of people that were struggling, worried about the future, worried about what's going to happen, and letting them know that we need each other to conquer anxiety. We need to come together, bear one another uh, one another's burdens, together casting our anxieties on God because he loves us. And this doesn't happen at 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning. And I would love to pray with you, but I'm going to be honest with you, I cannot have a deep relationship with every one of you. I can barely remember your names. I'm not big enough for that, but the person next to you is who the person's supposed to fill that role for you, and you're supposed to fill that role for the person next to you. In order to be the church, we have to be the church. This happens face to face. This happens in your living room, on the phone, desperately loving one another, earnestly loving one another. We have to change our mind about what church is. It's not a place, it's a people. And these people are sitting next to you. So when you say, well, I love the church, it's not this building. What if God asked us to sell this building and give away the money? Would that devastate you? Would that just, we can't do that. This isn't eternal. This is temporary. But the person sitting next to you, that's what will last into the next life. Jesus, Jesus modeled this togetherness and this bearing of one another's burdens in the Garden of Gethsemane. Isn't this weird? Jesus was riddled with fear and worry. The Bible tells us that he, you know, was tempted in all ways that we are, and he had emotions, and sometimes we're surprised when he shows them. And sure, he knew what was going to happen, but that didn't make it easy. It actually might have made it worse, right? He knew exactly what he was going to go through, and it was terrible. And the pressure that he felt caused him to sweat drops of blood. But even Jesus didn't try and do it alone. Even the God of the universe came down in flesh, didn't try to bear his burdens alone. It shows us that in Matthew 26, 37. He took his disciples to the garden to pray with him and said, pray with me, pray with me. Then he took his three closest friends, Peter, James, and John, in Matthew 26, 37. It says he took with him Peter, and two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be grieved. Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, began to be grieved and distressed. And then he looked at them and he said, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here. Stay with me. Keep watch with me. He looks at his friends and he says, I feel like I'm dying. I feel like I'm dying. I just need you to be here with me. We have to be a church that does this for each other. This is a group project. And the staff and the council, we can't do this for us. And we need to do it as well, but we have to do it. Because there's people in this room, if they really let you see them today, they would say the same thing. I feel like I'm dying. I feel like I'm dying inside. I just need someone to be here with me. I need someone to together help me cast my anxieties on the Lord. Someone to remind me that he cares about me and that he's good and that he loves me. 
Peter, James, and John flunked that test in the garden. They fell asleep. Church, we can't sleep on each other. We can't fall asleep on each other. We can't ignore the pain. Yes, I know you don't have the answers. I don't have the answers either. But sometimes it's just help to be there with someone. Let people know that they are known. Let people know that they are cared for. Let people know that they are seen and that they are not alone. Do you have a Peter, James, and John? Ah, there's your excuse, right? I don't have somebody like that. Well, here's the real challenge. Are you being a Peter, James, and John? Are you being a Peter, James, and John? See, the heart problem of anxiety is killing society and it's killing the church. People need to know that they are known and that they are cared for by you and by a holy God. There's a cliche that says love is a risk, but we have to take it. That means you can't sit around waiting for Peter, James, and John to show themselves. You have to, uh, for once, we need to have empathy, and we need to think outside of our own needs. We have to be a, take a leap to be a Peter, James, and John. I want to challenge us, challenge you, challenge myself to decide that we're going to walk up to someone in this building to the church and say, look, I don't know if you're struggling with anything. I don't know what's going on in your life, but I, I want you to know, I don't have a lot of answers, but I want to be there. I can just, I can wait and I can watch and I can pray with you. I don't, I don't know everything that you're going through and you don't I've, I've even really need to tell me, but I want you to know that you're seen and that you're loved and you're accepted and I want to be here for you. Don't be surprised if it gets messy, okay? Don't be surprised if it hurts sometimes. It's not fun to hurt with somebody else. But then we'll be the church that loves one another, bears one another's burdens, together, casting our anxieties on a holy God that cares about us. We have to do this together. We are better together. We together can make something so much better than we can alone. This is what God's designed. This is how he set this thing up to work. Not that we would just come and sit in a building together, but that we would be there for each other. If you could see some faces out in the room today, and don't look around, you could see some people right now that have tears streaming down their face. I'm not looking in their direction. And you would know that there's some problems in this room that are bigger than your problem. And the miraculous thing that God has set up is that when we help people with our problems, he gives us this special peace and comfort. And sometimes the answer to your problem is stop caring so much about your problem. Start caring about someone else's problem. We are better together. We have to do this together. Every head bowed and eyes closed.
70% of people between 18 to 35 believe that they are not loved. No one deeply cares for them. They don't feel like anyone believes in them. And I can guarantee those other age groups feel the same. You could look to a person next to you and the truth is there's a really good chance that they're struggling. Yeah, they might have this, you know, smile on their face and avoid talking about it. And that's okay. You don't have to pry. But what you can do is lean over and say, I'm here for you. Whatever you need, I'm here for you. And then follow through. When they call, pick the phone up. When they text, answer it. Text them, say, hey, how are you doing today? Is there anything I can do for you? That's what love is. Love is not a feeling. Love is a action. Same action that Jesus took when he stepped out of heaven, down to a cross, and died on it for us. Not because he wanted to do that, but because we needed it. And that's why he wanted to do it. Every head's bowed and eyes closed. Maybe this morning you want to come down and pray for somebody you know is struggling with these things we talked about. Maybe a family member. And you want to pray and you know, ask God to help you to be that person for somebody. Maybe you've got something else going on. Maybe you've got bad doctor's report or financial problems or interpersonal problems. And you just want to pray. God, I've been so worried about this. I've been so anxious about this. This thing has dominated my mind. God, help me cast it on you. But don't leave it there. Go and talk to somebody about it. Not in a gossipy way. Say, I'm struggling with this. I know it's not right. And I need some help. The Bible tells us to confess our faults one to another. Let's do some work this morning. Let's decide we're going to break out of the pews, break out of the rows, and start being the church. Salt altars open. You can deal with whatever God wants you to deal with in your pew as well. There's something special, though, about physically taking a step about what's going on on the inside.